This is Designing the Revolution. You're listening to Chapter 27, Assemblies and Ecstasy, Part 2. Okay, it's always a bit of a mouthful that, isn't it? <laughs> right, so in Part 1, um, we talked about uh, democracy and how we're going to make decisions in the lead up to this revolution and potentially during it. And the lift cliffhanger, as it were, was there's major problems. There's major problems with representational democracy, uh, clientism, um, the rich and powerful dominating the process, political parties, blah, blah, blah. Then there's major problems with direct democracy because you can't have deliberative deliberation with everyone in the country. Uh, so if we're going to create a 21st century revolution, it's actually going to be interesting as opposed to a repeat of the semi-disasters or total disasters of the 20th century. We need to, we need to have something up our sleeve. And what we've got up our sleeve is sortition. So what's sortition? People don't like the word, you know, quite rightly, no one's heard of it. But, so maybe we're going to call it something else. But it's what it r refers to that's what's important. So the great breakthrough, and needless to say, this breakthrough isn't a breakthrough, you know, they were doing it 2,000 years ago in ancient Athens. But the point is, is from a design point of view, it's a breakthrough because it's saying we can have genuine representation with genuine deliberation. How do we do that? By selecting people by chance from the population that reflects all the various uh, elements of society. So what does that mean? What it means is there are 60 million people in the UK, we choose 100 people. Um, it's 50% women, 50% men. Um, it's, let's say, 60% working class people in the UK. It's going to be 60% working class. If 1% of the people, 1% of the most richest people, the richest 1% of people get 1%. It's one person. It's starting to sound quite interesting, right? Then if there's... 15%, 20% ethnic minorities, they get, they get reflected with 15, 20% of representation in the assembly. Geographically, you get people from all different areas of the country. So what that means is, is you're immediately got enough people to represent all these different groups um, with massive advantages. There's no pre-selection bias. It's not like the rich and powerful have made it difficult for working class people to get into the assembly. It's not like there's a political party that's got its own, own power interests in the assembly. People are directly chosen. Obviously, in the last analysis, that, that system can get corrupted, but it's obvious and it's against the rules if it is, and it's quite possible to envisage a society or a system where you create these citizens' assemblies, as they're called, and they have been, you know, there's been lots of them, 
and they have a nice transparent mechanism of working out who, who actually enters the assembly. Just as in principle voting mechanisms can become corrupted, you know, people can lean on each other and can be violence to stop the voting system. But there's plenty of empirical examples where the voting system is free and fair uh, or substantively free and fair. So that sorts out that representational problem. You're not, people can't be bought, they're ordinary people. Obviously, these people aren't going to be in the assembly forever, right? In to talk about a particular issue, or if we have a sortition based assembly, they're going to be in for, say, a year, two years max, let's say. So there's rotations so there, they don't become corrupted by power. So, so far, pretty good, right? Secondly, there's something enormously glorious about ordinary people making decisions, right? So it can be romantic about this, but there's empirical evidence that shows when you put ordinary people in the room, they're not power mad, they're not psychopaths, they're not political careerists. They're feeling honoured because they've been asked to be part of this assembly, they're taking it seriously, they're conscientious as a result. And because they're pretty ordinary people and they want to get on with each other, they're looking into each other's you know, eyeballs, they're going to come up with, number one, something that makes common sense, right? Not something that is being uh, under the programme of the rich and powerful, the 1%. Secondly, they're going to start agreeing with each other because there's not that political ego in the room. There's not that, you know, I've I've selected myself because I'm a particularly ego-y sort of power-mad person. They've been selected by sortition, they're ordinary people. They don't have this big ambition syndrome. Even if they did, they're going to be out within a year or whatever it's going to be. Okay, that's good. Ordinary people, they make good decisions. Lots of evidence, lots of theoretical support for this idea. Thirdly, it's a joyous situation. It's a joyous situation because, obviously, because of this sociability dynamic, we've already talked about this, right? People are joining together, people love to chat, people love to be in small groups, and they love to co-create their, their, their reality together. So I think when I was reading about it a few years ago, I was amazed by this ecstatic element, right? Which is why I've, taught, why I've called these episodes assemblies and ecstasy because people genuinely feel excited, not just on a political level, but on an emotional level, on in a life fulfillment level, on a spiritual level. They're coming out to the assembly and saying, that was the best day of my life because I was able to be the person that I truly am, which is a pro-social, um, want to get on with people, want to get things done, want to be sensible and play my part as an adult, as a citizen, as a human being in the construction, the continual reconstruction of my society. You know, people want to do this. They don't want to be doing it like every day of the week, right? But yeah, sure, I'll go on jury service. People know how that works uh, with a court system. Same idea with politics. I do my month, I do my three months, maybe I even do a year. I get financially compensated, obviously, so that poor people can take part in people that have got particular uh, needs. Okay, so, really good. Um, what does all that add up to? It doesn't add up to utopianism, right? What it adds up to is a massive step forward from authoritarian regimes, fascistic regimes, but also 
it's a massive step up from regimes with parliamentary corrupt assemblies, uh, parliaments where people are voted in by political parties. Yeah, they're definitely better than fascistic authoritarian regimes, but they've got m m major problems. And those problems are increasing exponentially because they are under the thumb of international capitalism. And I'm not saying that, as, as I've said before, I'm not saying that because I've got this sort of ideological view, I'm just looking at it observationally, that if you want to have socialism in one country, which you know might be a good idea, might not be a good idea, but if the people want it, they're not able to have it because uh, arguably all these uh, capital flight dynamics come in and everyone gets poorer and blah, blah, blah. There's a whole bunch of dynamics I've talked about. With, with sortition, you're basically getting a step up. And we're going to talk about the contextualization of these assemblies in some detail in the next two episodes. But on a theoretical basis, it's a no-brainer. It's a step up, right? And it's in the real world, so it's going to have limits. It's not utopian, but it's going to be better. All right. There's another really important life-saving element to sortition and sortition-based assemblies where people are allowed to talk freely in a Habermas-style way, as we discussed in the last episode. And this is this anti-herding mechanism. So I want to bring us back just for five minutes, and I can't exaggerate how important this is, is there's a really solid reason why we're going to hell on the climate. We've, lots of people talk about a sort of obvious reason, which is we're dominated by capitalism, we're dominated by this global elite, this global elite's interest is, is in uh, maximising oil production, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go over two degrees, civilizational collapse, right? Yeah, no doubt that's a major dynamic. But there's another dynamic, which is it isn't political as such, it's psychological. And that dynamic is herding which is everyone's used to having loads of money, you know, relative to 200 years ago, going on holidays, eating meat. People are used to wanting, you know, to get on in life. Why not? You know, da, 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 da. Um, that means the politicians aren't going to decarbonise uh, because they're scared they're going to be voted out of office. Obviously, we can bring in, you know, all the right-wing media, which promotes all this consumerism, individualism. But the fact of the matter is, is this is what you might call an autonomous herding situation, is the public actually wants this stuff, regardless of right-wing forces, at least at this point in time. And the reason for that is because of the attention deficit, right? which is if they had time to sit down for two hours or they had someone like me talk to them or, or they went to an assembly, they are going to put their attention resources into actually what's going to happen. Now, it's a, a no-brainer that when people sit down for a few hours or even an hour in a, a Just a Boyle meeting, for instance, a significant number of them will want to engage in civil disobedience, for instance. In other words, they have this massive, like, anti-herding experience where they go, what the fuck? This is beyond bad. We need to do something. Um, because they've had the information, it violates their values. 
So what the Citizens' Assembly does in the first instance, what sortition does in a Citizens' Assembly, is enable people to have the time to look at the climate crisis and then put forward the policies that objectively are going to maximise the probability we don't have civilizational collapse, right? And notice my phrasing there. I'm not saying it's a done deal, but it's a massive design step forward. And the broader issue, of course, is the same as well, which is people are going to become more compassionate because they're going to be exposed to the real lives of others, the real lives of each other. They're going to be sensitised. They're going to be able to have, have time to have it explained and why, how and why the rich and powerful dominate our society. So even if they weren't aware of that or they'd soaked in some of the right-wing propaganda on it, people generally are going to move to the left or move to a more pro-social scenario. Not necessarily on issues which are individual conscience, you know, life and death issues. Uh, but yes, you know, one of the best examples is abortion in Ireland. Citizens' Assembly came along. People moved over to a compassionate position, a, a position that took into account the whole of the landscape, as you might say, and they came out and said, we've changed our mind. Okay, so we count, you know, without sounding too dramatic, we count exaggerate how important this element, this sortition-based assembly, citizens' assemblies as it's called, on a theoretical level, supported by all this empirical evidence, is in saving us from climate collapse and doing that through the reconstruction of how a regime makes decisions, how a society makes decisions. Okay, so at this stage I'm just going to take a little diversion. Uh, maybe this isn't all your cups of teas, <laughs> but I want to um, I want to make the argument that this is a lot more profound. You know, a lot of people think about, oh, sortition, that's great, that's a nice little technique, great, it's a tactic, it's a design element, something a lot deeper going on here. And if we're going to reconstruct a new civilization, we need to have a deeper understanding of the problem of being human and the problem of constructing a society of humans. And, and the, there's, perennial, there's a perennial problem here. And the perennial problem is who decides who decides, right? It's a foundational question in political theory going back thousands of years, arguably. And arguably, it's the central question of political theory, which is, OK, I'm going to make a decision. Sure, but why should you make the decision, right? What's so special about you? Well, the answer to that question, as we all know, is, is there's a whole bunch of answers. You know, I've, I'm, I'm a priest. I'm a rich person. I don't care. I'm going to kill you if you don't agree with my decision. You know, it's all sort of dysfunctional, unpleasant answers to that question. But even in democratic, dis even in democratic systems, you can see, as we discussed in the last episode, democratic systems tend to break down because it's other people making decisions or it's people like representatives and they're not making good decisions. Why should they make? Why should they represent us? They don't represent us uh, and, 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 and such like. So what I want to touch on here is, is there was a particular solution to this problem in the pre-modern European period and that was the divine right of kings. 
So a king could come along and say, hey, I'm the king. You know, I'm going to rule you and you've got to do what I've said. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Well, that, you know, that has a certain <laughs> persuasive quality. But as you probably know, right, it wasn't just that. There was a sort of ideological element. It wasn't just raw threat of terror. It was an ideology. And there's always an ideology behind terror regimes because terror is pretty, like, it doesn't really work very well. It works a lot better if you have a justification for engaging in that terror or orientation. And that divine right of kings, as you probably know, was, hey, God's put me, you know, I'm the king. I've been put here by God. Divine right of kings means if I'm the king, God has said you can have absolute power or effectively absolute power, share it a bit with the church on a good day. But I'm basically the main guy. and I'm going to tell everyone what to do. And you might say, oh, that's terrible. You know, isn't that terribly unprogressive, blah, blah, blah. But that's not really the point. The point I want to make is it was a solution to the who decides, who decides. In other words, whether whether God existed or not, and I'm sure lots of people that supported the divine right of kings didn't really, that's not, they weren't really bothered whether God exists or not. They brought God into the equation because God created a final decision. It was a solution to the who decides, who decides. Well, God decides, God decides that the king decides. Oh, end of story. So it was a very powerful argument, particularly in a society where God was a real phenomenon in terms of social meaning systems. It was like, God's put Charles I in charge. I need to submit to Charles I. Okay, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a situation. But it was a rubbish situation, wasn't it? Because, of course, God hadn't put Charles I in charge. There wasn't a divine being that came down and literally said, Charles I is the best guy. He wasn't. He was just another guy, wasn't he? Um, and he made a mess of it, as most monarchs do. Absolute leaders, even if they claim to be put there by God, we all know they're just another guy. And so it broke down, right, because people said the emperor's got no clothes. It also broke down because these guys were rubbish at ruling and they made loads of mistakes and, you know, those revolutions and such like. But interestingly enough, um, the, pro the modern problem where you don't have God hasn't got a solution either because what they say is, oh, well, some humans are going to decide on which humans are going to decide. And that's a rabbit hole, like which humans? Okay, well, we decided these humans. What do you mean? Who's decided these humans? Some other humans, but what's so special about those humans? Nothing, you see. So you've got this irresolvable political problem. Um, and you don't want to go back to God because, you know, God doesn't exist, right, in that sense. Um, blah, blah, blah. So, so what we have with Sotician is a fundamental break with what you might call humanist democracy, i.e. humans decide on humans, because you've got this other phenomenon called chance. Now, chance is not human. That's the whole point of chance, right? It's like when you're playing a game, you have chance so someone doesn't have to decide. You know, you, you shake the dice to see who, come, who goes first when you're playing Monopoly. Why? Because otherwise someone has to decide. If someone has to decide 
then why should that person, why should your dad decide, you know, what's so special about him? <laughs> no, we're going to shake the dice. Whoever gets the highest roll, you know, it's just chance. The beauty of chance is it's incorruptible, right? It's not someone's power move. In other words, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got, you've taken the, you've taken the humans out of the decision on who decides, but you haven't gone back to God because God doesn't exist, but chance exists. And of course, some people would say that, you know, chance is God. Well, you know, we could have a big discussion about that, but we don't need to go there for the purposes of, of this video. But you can see, like, this is a deeply satisfying step forward, which is hum the whole humanist experiment, as you might say, if you're familiar with this in the history of ideas, is, is it was great, you know, the French Revolution came along, humans get rid of God, humans are going to decide things, we've liberated ourselves, but we haven't because we've had 200 years of revolutions and wars and fascism and, you know, communism and all the rest of it. So we really haven't sorted out the problem of politics. Arguably this does in a substantive way. Now, I'm not going to therefore claim that this is, you know, utopian, that's, that's another kettle of fish, but hopefully you can all see that we're going for this. You know, this is the 21st century revolution. This is significantly better than this secular humanist, you know, let's pretend there isn't some people deciding how to decide because representational democracy is self-evidently corruptible and corrupted in this particular historical moment. All right, so, you know, sort of quite interesting for those of you that want to have a little deeper think about chance. Let's move on to, you know, touch base with the other philosophical or deeper structural point, which is this proves Foucault wrong. Not entirely, but what I mean by that is the Fouconian position is whoever's got power become a, becomes a, a tyrant. It's, it's the extreme cynical but quite robust theory about power which is people get power, they get corrupted. As soon as people decide, they are a tyrant, basically. And so you have to endlessly get rid and question everything and everyone all the time, and it's exhausting, and, you know, people try and do this. But what, what we concretely have got here is a strong, a strong literature, empirical literature of saying, if you choose people by chance, if you choose ordinary people and you put them into a position of power, the Fouconian critique weakens significantly because they're only there for a small amount of time and they're ordinary and they want to make decisions. And, and they make decisions in what you might call a collegiate, pro-social way. Not all the time, not on everything, but again, there's a massively substantive advance and reply to that. Fouconian critique. Uh, and the reason for that is because paradoxically the Fouconian critique rests on a capitalistic, materialistic, Newtonian idea of what human nature is, which is loads of big words. But what it substantially means, what I'm trying to say here, is we that human beings are not blank slates that just therefore pursue their self-interest, that therefore, that's the capitalist sort of orientation. The paranoid left sort of variant is people are just after power, they're bad, 
because they seek power. Once they're into power, you have to overthrow them. This, both of these visions of the human are fundamentally like depressive, but they're also fundamentally wrong, which isn't, isn't to say that we're then going to adopt an uncritical, oh, humans are great, sort of, you know, wishy-washy, hippie orientation. No, we, we're, we're adopting a grounded notion of human sociability being something we're hardwired to desire and that sociability through the sortition mechanism can create assemblies that combine sociability with this deliberative process that gets a substantially better decision in according to our intersubjective orientations. That's a major mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> but I don't quite know how I can explain this without using some big words and you know, that's why I've done loads of episodes to try and try and bring you up to speed on it. There's a, the, 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 I'll, I'll end this little section and there's a little sort of sideline here on, on what social Catholicism says. Why am I bringing in social Catholicism? I'm not bringing in social Catholicism because I'm saying social Catholicism is the way, the only way. But social Catholicism is an example of an attempt to do what we're doing. It's in the same sort of region of thinking, which is to say humans aren't blank slates, right? They desire love. They want to, to, to give love. This is sort of similar. It's a secularized version of a certain progressive Catholic orientation. And you might, you know, some people might say you can see this in Buddhism, you might see it in other aspects of Christianity. You can certainly see it in various indigenous traditions. So it's not like, the, the the dividing line here isn't between indigenous and modern, right? It's it's within these traditions. You have this this reductive materialism tradition, and then within these traditions, you have this 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 sociability um, tradition, as you might say. Okay, so you know to summarise, we are hardwired to act in community and act in good faith in the space of a sortition assembly. Great, we're getting somewhere. Welcome to 21st century. This is what we're trying to do. Um, all right, so I want to finish off with starting to move towards the contextualization because contextualization is everything, right? You know, this sounds great, Roger, but actually in 2023 in Bolton, what's the deal? <laughs> you know? Yeah, good question. All right, so as we sort of segue into this, the, the, the third episode in, in this section, let me just concretize things a little bit. So you're going to have a citizens' assembly, people are going to come together. You've got this legitimation, this political legitimation of, of self-evidently a, a group of people who mathematically reflect a general population. They're going to come up with these pro-social uh, policies and what have you. All good. But this is, there's more to it than that, which is that once people come out of the assembly, you've got the optics of an ordinary person saying what the British people, assuming it's in the UK, actually want. And you have the optics of that person changing their opinion to something more progressive, pro-social. So an example is, you know, you get an electrician from Bedford coming out of your assembly on the climate crisis going, I went in, I thought this was all a load of nonsense, but I'll tell you what, it's not. 
It's a total fucking crisis. And everyone in this country needs to pull their socks up and get on with it. Otherwise, we're going to be training our kids and the Daily Mail can go to hell, right? The fact that an electrician is saying it rather than some radical, you know, teacher from North London or something, right? is a thousand times more effective. The fact that you can see someone saying it who's ordinary is a thousand times more effective. And this is what's gonna bring society together, right? So we've talked a lot in these series about polarizing. Polarizing <coughs> is important, right? Because it gets everyone talking and depolarizing is important, which is bringing, after that debate, after the direct action, all this after confrontation, after the citizen assembly, society has to come together and say, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. In other words, they need to decide on what's called public goods, things that are gonna affect everyone, right? Everyone's going to you know, only be able to fly once a year. Okay, we've decided this. It's a rule for the whole society. It's legitimate because these people were chosen by chance and they've come out and I can see that they're ordinary people. Wow, okay. You know, if everyone else is doing it, if this electrician is going to do it, I'm going to do it as well. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to briefly flag up before I finish just two sort of other dynamics I'm going to go, just little tasters I'm going to go into this in more detail. And this makes it even more exciting, which is like how you can use citizen assembly as a mechanism, sortition-based assemblies or people's assemblies, we'll go into this in more detail, as a mechanism to actually construct the people right because when we construct the people it's not like we construct the people take control of the state and then everything's fine right we construct the people we take control of the state and then all hell breaks loose because all the bad guys are going to try and undermine you so you need to complete com continually reconstruct the the political legitimacy that comes from constructing the people actualized as it were through the optics of people uh, people's or uh, citizens assemblies so the notion here is is when when you get into power you're going to you're not going to say like the old left-wing people do this is what we're going to do we're going to do this on childcare what you're going to say is i think we should do this on childcare but we're not going to decide we're going to give it to a citizens assembly knowing full well that citizens assembly is going to come out with something pro-social you know not every every time and maybe it's going to be a little bit of a variation on the theme but the important thing is political legitimacy. So when the billionaire press and all the right-wing people are undermining you and paying for people to make up stories about you and all the rest of the crap, you've got a counterweight. You're supported by the legitimacy of a national assembly. So you can say, well, you might think I'm you know, a load of shit, but it doesn't matter what you think about Roger Hallam. Here's the citizen assembly, that this is what they've decided. And even more profoundly and importantly, potentially, is whenever there's a revolutionary process, things get worse. That's why there's revolutions, because things are getting worse. I mean, if everything was hunky-dory, people wouldn't be having a revolution, right? Things get worse, and there's revolutions, and things get a lot worse after that, because, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. If people aren't going to turn against a revolution, they need to feel like they, they own it. And if they have citizens' assemblies, they're going to come up with solutions to that to that you know, having less material stuff and they're going to own it and they're going to enjoy it because, and this is my final big point, right? Which is we're not material beings. We're empirically, it just isn't empirically like literate. 
there's overwhelming evidence that what people believe in is meaning systems and they can move from a meaning system that's materialist to a meaning system that's post-materialist and they do this regularly through history and quite rapidly in a matter of months or a matter of years maybe a matter of weeks and they go I don't care about all this stuff what I care about is the revolution what I care about is is this country you know uh, making the transition. I don't care if I don't need to go on holiday. You might think, oh yeah, you know, good luck with that, Roger. With all due respect, it's going to happen. It can happen and it will happen because we're going to be becoming lots poorer as a society. So there's a whole bunch of, you know, arguments there. Just give me a little taster. <laughs> and we're going to go be looking in the next uh, uh, episodes at this contextualization and in the next chapter, we're going to be looking at how these assemblies become a weapon, as it were, of the new regime, the new carbon deliberative regime against all that stuff that's going to be thrown against us. And um, it will be thrown against us. Absolutely. Thanks.